guys this morning. Uh, I felt like a living sacrifice on the beach out in uh, Michigan last week as I was staring out over the waters and taking a look at all of God's creation and just being thankful for everything that he had provided for us. And especially a church family that Heather and I could walk away from and leave here to carry on the mission of the gospel while we sat and were completely worthless on the beach for an entire week. So it was awesome to be back with you guys and we missed you, not that much, but we, uh, we, we, did, we did miss you guys a lot and we're thanking and praying for you. So it was glad, uh, we were glad to have that opportunity. Well, as has been said, we are in week 11 of Romans and you know, this has gotta be the longest series I think I've ever participated in with the church. Usually series are like three or four weeks and it's packaged nicely, wrapped up with a bow and set aside, you know, and moving on to the next series. But we've really taken the opportunity to dive deeply into Romans. And I don't know about you, but this has been a huge blessing for me. The continuity of Paul's thought as he's been enabled by the Holy Spirit has been transforming for me. And I pray that it has been for you as well. What I'd ask you to do as we jump in here is crack open your Bible or your cell phone and pull open something like you version. One of these versions of scripture that speaks to your soul the most, even if you pull the phone open and you go to a website like BibleStudyTools.com or use you version, as I said a minute ago, track along with the words of the scripture and let God speak to you in the moment. See, this is when the scripture gets real. I like the way Tony put that a minute ago. When we're reading the scripture together and we have it right in front of us and our eyes are on it, sometimes God triggers something in the heart or in the mind, which we'll talk about a little bit more today. And he does that as we personally interact with his word, but in the context of our church family. And as we talked about, we're going to look a little bit deeper into Romans chapter 12, which you guys remember how important and what a big deal we made of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 12 is right up there with it. There's some stuff in chapter 12 that will change your life if you allow it to. The stuff is the Holy Spirit working through these words. And we're going to get into that and deeply into that in a couple of moments. Now, as has been our habit in the series, what we've done is focused on one or two or three verses as a focused set of verses. The entire chapter of Romans chapter 12 is vitally important for the pragmatics of Christian living. Now, what are pragmatics? It's an education word. I used to be a teacher back in the day. I taught special education for nine years. So you're gonna find working with me and teaching and understanding scripture. I like to dig into stuff and break it apart so that I can understand the bits that make the whole picture. So for me, it was helpful to start a habit in studying Romans where we just pick a few verses each week and we focus in on them and try to tear them apart, do what's called expository teaching on these few verses. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 in particular. Now, Tony read 1, 2, and 3. Um, the third verse is also very important for us in Christian living. Today, we're going to focus particularly on verses 1 and 2 and then graft in that third verse as Tony read it as we go a little bit later. So I'm going to read it for you again, and this is from the NIV, the New International Version. Scripture says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Now, the God's mercy part is the mercy he's given us through who? Through Jesus. 
God gave us the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, we are not required to earn our salvation. Jesus did the earning for us. Where did he do that? Did that on the cross, right? And then after the cross, what happened? He rose again from the grave. And both sides of the gospel on that end are equally important. The death on the cross and then the rising from the grave. Because what happened after the rising from the grave is a new life. What we're talking about here today is a new life. Paul is saying in view of that mercy, in view of us receiving a new life in Jesus, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So we're going to talk about the idea of being a living sacrifice a little bit, first of all. This language comes from the ancient world where peoples, people groups, used to sacrifice animals in order to please a god. Here's how that worked. If you sinned or if you fell short of pleasing a god then you could offer the life of an animal as a sacrifice in exchange for whose life? Your life. So instead of your life being ended and replaced with a perfect life, you could offer an animal's life, and through the shedding of that animal's blood, your life would be exchanged for that animal's life. The sin or the failure that you lived through would be realized and experienced in consequence by the animal you were sacrificing. So what was happening was an animal was being given to appease whatever God was being worshipped or served. Now we know that ancient Greeks back in the time of Jesus worshipped the ancient Greek gods. Name some of them. Now this may be going back to fourth grade for some of us, which may be a stretch. What are some of the Greek gods? Athena, Zeus, what else? Poseidon. Poseidon. Hermes. You guys remember this. You were trained this in school. The idea was the Greeks would try to appease the gods and they would often use animal sacrifice. Well, if you go back and you study the ancient origins of Christianity, you're also going to find that the progenitors, the people who got started in Christianity were Jews. And in fact, Jesus was and still is a Jew. He would have participated in all the rituals of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people had animal sacrifice as a part of their worship. You might remember if you study any of the history of the tabernacle before the temple in Jerusalem was built. And then the times of the temple, whenever the temple was standing, the people would come and make animal sacrifices to who? Not the Greek gods, but who? To our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would sacrifice some animal in order to show God contrition for their sin. Sin is where we break with God's will and we decide to do things our way instead of the way God has said to do them. Or we decide to live in a way uh, that is more pleasing to ourselves than the way that God has made us to live. So the ancient Israelites, the Hebrews, would have learned the art of sacrificing animals. And it's kind of gross, but the letting of blood from an animal, the release of blood from an animal, in their mind, back in those times, was the life of that animal being poured out. 
And so as a part of their worship, what would happen is an animal would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Its blood would be poured out and the priests would take some of that blood and they would pour it or sprinkle it on the altar. And in fact, sometimes they would sprinkle it on the people. The reason is, is because sin required death. And God back then instructed people to take life or put death upon an animal in order to deal with the concept of their sin. The concept of their sin and the fact that sin takes away life and causes death and requires a new life in exchange for it was primarily worked through animal sacrifice at the temple. So even our progenitors, those that went before us in the faith, would bring bulls and goats and sacrificial lambs to be sacrificed for their sins. But what that means for you and me is that God has called us to be a living version of the ultimate sacrifice, who is Jesus. Jesus was the one who ultimately dealt with our sin by letting his blood come out where? On the cross. You see, the animals back in ancient Israel were only ever a symbol. They were only ever a shadow of the true sacrifice to come. And that was Jesus. That was the Messiah. The Messiah was always going to die. His blood was always going to be shed. And the reason it was always going to be shed is because you and I cannot sacrifice of ourselves enough to the point of death to pay for our own sin. There's only one who can do that. And his name is Jesus. And thanks be to God, Jesus did that because that means you and I, we don't need to sacrifice uh, our bodies on the cross. Thanks be to God. And we no longer, as a human race, need to sacrifice animals to try to appease a God. Because God has revealed to us, I am pleased with you through Jesus. I'm already pleased with you through Jesus. And if any little part of you receives and accepts the fact that Jesus died for you and rose again from the grave, the Bible says that that faith goes straight to God as an appeasement for sin, and sin is taken away forever. It is removed as far as the east is from the west. You and I no, no, no longer need to sacrifice anything in order to be pleasing to God. But then, what happens to our lives? What direction does our life go in after we become a follower of Jesus? This is where Paul gets into the idea of becoming a living sacrifice. Now, what does that mean for you and me to be a living sacrifice? Does it mean that we die to ourselves every day and are reborn again in faith in Christ? That's what it means. It means that my life as it used to be has ended by declaration and proclamation of Jesus Christ. It is over. It is gone. And the consequence of my sin from that old life is forever buried and forgotten in the eyes of a holy God. God has claimed me 
and placed me in his kingdom as a living sacrifice, a sacrifice who turns over his will and his thoughts to a holy God who did what was required to save him, both from sin and from a life that is purposeless and pointless. God has done everything that is required so that when we become a living sacrifice and when we begin to walk around thinking God's thoughts and feeling God's heart and serving as God serves and being the hands and feet of Jesus, as we walk around doing this, our life becomes an act of worship. The scripture in the NIV calls it a true and proper worship. Now, we tend to think of worship in different ways in the church. Some churches think of worship as an amazing rock band on stage with great cool graphics and multimedia and loud sounds and large numbers of people gathering and singing the name of Jesus. Some churches get together in schools and form small groups and have smaller musical offerings and have kids ministry and have more focused time and conversation. Some churches go and dress up for church and attend where there's an altar and there are readings and there are sacraments. Some people believe that this alone constitutes worship. It does not. These practices one to two hours a week are worship services. And when we come to a worship service, the design of that experience is to grow us and to build us up in the faith. But worship truly happens when we step outside of the auditorium, outside of the school building, and outside of the worship center and walk around in everyday life. True worship happens when we are a living sacrifice used by God to serve other people in the name of Jesus so that when somebody asks us, why are you being so kind to me? Why are you loving me this way? Why are you caring for me this way? Why are you doing for me what you're doing? Why is your attitude the way it is? Then as Peter says, we can be prepared to give an answer for the faith we have. And say something like, it's because that's how God has treated me. I didn't need to go to the cross for my sins. I didn't need to offer a sacrifice of myself. Jesus did that for me. And he served me that forgiveness up on a silver platter in the form of our Savior, Jesus. So I just want to share that with you. I don't want to convert you. I want to change you. I want to try to make you into something else. That's God's work. I simply want to reflect in your life what God has reflected in mine. That he loves me so much and he loves you. And this average everyday walkabout worship is the worship that we were always designed to live in, always made to live for, where every single day becomes an act of worship. Now, the scripture talks about the idea of not conforming to the pattern of this world. What is the pattern of the world you see around you? Is the pattern of the world you see around you a self-serving pattern or a pattern that supplicates itself to the will of God? Which would you prefer to see? You prefer to see the second one, 
But what do you really see in everyday life? You see a world where people serve who? Serve themselves. This is why the cross makes sense. Because Jesus ultimately didn't serve himself. Who did he serve? You and me. And he served his father God by serving you and me on the cross. Now, this idea of being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that word transformed is a key word. It's the same kind of root concept as when Jesus went up on the mountain uh, with a few of his friends and was transfigured before them. Now, if you remember this story, Jesus goes up on a mountain with a few of his disciples and who does he run into? God is there and says, this is my son, listen to him. You know, but Moses and Elijah are up there hanging out too and they're having a little small group meeting up at the top of the mountain. But Jesus is visibly changed in front of them in this scripture. And the word that's used for transfigured, that same word is a similar word as the one back in our Romans passage that talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's an actual change that takes place in us. Something changes in us. Uh, Paul talked about this with the Corinthians, the Corinthians when he said, so all of us who have had that veil removed, the veil of sin that keeps us away from a holy God, all of us have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. Almost like we're a prism or a mirror for the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So what you find happening is, no matter what's going on in life, no matter what's going on around you in the world, you find yourself more and more like a prism or a mirror for the glory of God. The glory of God is love, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. The glory of God shines in you and you begin to change. You don't snap right up in faith and become a perfect person. That's not the goal. The goal is simply trusting in God this much, the size of a mustard seed, and then letting God do his work in you as he promises to do. God always grows what he saves. He always grows what he saves. If you look around in nature, plants are either growing or they're what? Dead. When God saves you through faith, he grows you. He leads you through change. He makes your heart more like his. And that is an ultimate act of love. God changes us and makes us into his image. You know, I stole a quote from Psychology Today. I don't spend a whole lot of time reading Psychology Today, so I literally just looked for some cool quotes and found this one out of Psychology Today. I studied psychology in college, and it's always kind of a, an interesting sidebar for me how People try to find out the wisdom of God without God in it. Here's what Psychology Today says about the idea of feeling things and thinking things. A common mistake is to assume that our emotional states are caused by events we experience. Something bad happens and we feel depressed. Something insults us and we feel angry. Something threatening happens and we feel anxious or fearful. 
Events are important, of course. They form the backdrop against which emotions arise. But for events to translate into emotions, catch this. They must be interpreted, processed, and analyzed by the thinking brain. Your emotional response depends on the meaning you attribute to the outcome, not on the outcome itself. So, for example, people have understood by what has been made in humanity that the way you think about your life affects how you feel about your life. So the attitude with which you approach the things that happen in your life is a direct effect into the life of your emotions. So the filter with which we look at life, the attitude with which we come at life, is all important because it affects how we feel and then how we do and what we say and ultimately again what we think. So the idea that Paul is putting out here for us is that we are called to be transformed by a renewing of what we think, not necessarily what we feel. And here is what God has called us to think. He has called us to assume and understand that there's a baseline in my life of peace. No matter what's going on in my life, there's a baseline of peace with God. And that peace with God affects every decision I make and everything I do. Uh, the graphic I put up on the screen, the idea of it comes from the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Uh, being thankful is a, a snapshot into the lifestyle of a Christ follower who understands what his or her purpose is. That purpose is to live in peace. Think about it. If you believe, teach, and confess that you are at peace with God, that sets a baseline in your heart for how you look at everything else in your life. If you are at peace with God, there is little, literally nothing that can stand against you. If you come into difficulty in your life, if you have a difficult relationship that comes into your life, if you have a difficulty at home that comes into your life, where something about your family or your marriage or your job or your physical body or your psyche or your emotions or something breaks, you know that when that comes, you have a baseline in your life of peace. There is nothing that can take that peace away. And it leads you to making decisions differently. If there's something that stands between you and another person that inhibits that relationship, you can let that go for the sake of peace. You can let that drop and fall to the wayside for the sake of peace because you know that peace is there in you and that God has called you and that other person to peace through Jesus. It gives you the strength to let go of things in life that are beyond your control and live in the peace of God, which passes all understanding, not just some of the understanding, but all of it. So that when we run into people, people at work, people at home, people in the community, people who are random strangers, people we've known for 30 years. When we run into people, our interactions with those people are undergirded by the truth that there's nothing that can take our peace away. 
in Jesus, we've been reclaimed and remade and rebuilt on a foundation of peace with God. Have you ever thought about your life that way? Whenever you run into difficulty, whenever you run into struggle and challenge, and you're trying to hang on to something that you're losing or something getting beyond your grasp or your control, have you ever stopped in that moment and thought, no matter what happens with this, God has me in his hands. He has me. He loves me. He's caring for me. And if I, for some reason, aren't getting my needs met or my desires met or my visions accomplished, God will provide instead. That is what it means to live in peace. That is what it means to have a new attitude in life as a follower of Jesus. That is what it means to have your mind transformed where you literally get a new attitude from the Holy Spirit that says no matter what happens, God's got this. What if we led every thought and every word and every deed with the idea that God's got this? What if we led that way instead of followed up in response? Would the way we respond to our life and the way we walk through our life be different? It might be. In fact, it might be even an instant change, a change that looks a lot like healing psychologically and emotionally. Now, being transformed by the renewing of our minds brings peace. Do you know the peace of God which passes understanding? Do you have that peace as your baseline? If you've trusted in Jesus, then you do. But even if you've trusted in Jesus, maybe you just need a reminder every great once in a while. That is why when we study Jesus, we study the idea that we come as we are. We are children, God's children, and we can come to him exactly the way we are. Broken, disfigured, disheveled, messed up, set back, trod upon, however you want to see it, we can come to him and reestablish our life in a baseline of peace at the asking. That come-as-you-are attitude translates into what we call a connection strategy of entertaining, listening, and inviting. Now, if you've been around here at South Naperville, you know about this. What this is, is it's a strategy we use to connect with people who don't know God's peace. The idea is, if I have God's peace in my life, I can and have everything already in place that's needed to share that peace. I have eyes and a mouth. I have hands and feet. I have a home, a place to live. I have resources to share, like food. I can always ask somebody for coffee or a beer or a meal. And in that entertaining time, the time of listening to them speak, I'm listening for opportunities to pray for them and even with them if they're open to it. As I listen for those opportunities and they grant those opportunities, I can do a 20 or 30 second prayer that initiates them into the experience of peace with God. 
Because that ultimately is what prayer is, isn't it? It's peace with God in words, in relationship, in motion, in action. And then, if they ever want to be open again or want to know more, I can invite them into more conversation, invite them to a serving event, invite them into my life a little bit more deeply. Because remember, it is my life, my everyday life, that is a true and active part of worshiping God. It is my regular everyday life shared with them that becomes worship. And the worship service is icing on that cake. And that's why we're here right now today. So the idea becomes this. As we look at what God has created in us in this piece, we look at it as something that we were called to share and called to give and called to be in relationship with others on. That is the basis of our relationship with others. So no matter what you find yourself walking into in life, you know that the peace of God that passes all understanding will be walking there and flowing there in you and through you. Take a look for just a moment at the bottom of Romans chapter 12. You're going to see there some practical ways, as we said in the beginning, to living your life as a follower of Jesus. Verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with each other. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Look at, uh, look at verse 18. As if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at what? Peace with everyone, as far as it depends on you. You cannot make people respond to you in peace, but you can respond to people in peace. God gives us that. And he gives us the power to do that every single day. By the way, if you want a really funny image, look at the bottom of, of the passage there. It says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, he will heap burning coals on his head. That sounds like violence, doesn't it? But actually what the image is, is back in that time, the way to carry fire from one camp to another is to put a big, large bowl, fireproof bowl, on your head with burning coals in it and to carry it around on top of your head from one site to another. And when you warm the head, what happens to the rest of the body? It is warmed up as well. What you're doing is you're seeing the pragmatic peace of God shared from one person to another. That is why we serve enemies. That is why we show them God's love. We're not burning their hair off with coals. We're sharing the light and the warmth and the power of God with them. So where are you today with this idea? Where are you with the peace of God? Do you know how much God loves you and how much he wants to work in you and through you? My goal today is to be a conduit for the Holy Spirit and to remind you of that power and that peace. As the kids come in, let's bow our heads and pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you so much for the ability to share what it is that I've got in me with other people. And that is the peace of God that cannot be broken, that cannot be uh, set aside by any of the circumstances of my life. Thank you for that baseline that I can live out of every single day. God, we praise you and we love you and we know that we are your children. You are the one who watches over us as a father who never stops loving and never stops giving. In your name we pray and together we say, amen.